Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is episode one of the Dokio podcast with Edmund Conroy. Find out more on our website at docio.edconroy.co.uk. Hello. Hello there. Good morning to you. It's, it's evening for me. Hello there. Welcome. My name is Ed Conroy. I am the host for the Dokio podcast. And in the first of two episodes, our two debut episodes, I am discussing peace and pacifism with Professor Andrew Fiala. Professor Fiala was former chair of philosophy at Fresno State University in California and is still the director of the university's ethics center. He has also been an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin. He is widely published, having authored such volumes as Transformative Pacifism in 2018, Against Religions, Wars and States in 2013, The Just War Myth in 2008 and Practical Pacifism in 2004, as well as some 50 plus academic papers. He's also given over 80 academic conference presentations. Professor Fiala was president of the CPP, that's the Concerned Philosophers for Peace, and is the first ever ethicist in resident at the Lyle Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. He's also been treasurer and webmaster for the Society for Philosophy in the Contemporary World. You can find out more about Professor Fiala by reading him at his own website, andrewfiala.com. And of course, there's always our website where you'll be able to find out some more information. That's docio.edconway.co.uk. Well, thank you for joining me for the first ever episode of the Docio podcast. And here is part one of my conversation with Professor Andrew Fiala. You're, you're based at Fresno State University in California, is that? Yes, that's right, Fresno State. We're in central California, close to the mountains, close to the Sierra Nevada mountains. Okay, and you've written quite widely on the subject of today, which is um, pacifism and peace, or peace and pacifism. As questions go i mean i've got quite a few questions for you today i hope that there'll be intelligent questions i have tried to read a little of your work um whether that's journal articles or um books i searched through my university library i just literally had to type in the phrase philosophy of peace and pacifism and all your stuff came up oh good (laughs) (laughs) so you'll be pleased to know that the university of sterling has um quite a few of your 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 works including a couple of your books you're listening to episode one of the docio podcast with edmund conroy and professor andrew fiala find us on twitter at docio podcast one of the big discussions we're going to have really is about war. It is the obvious one when we're talking about peace, we'll talk about war. And I guess when you're trying to define things, and obviously this is very much an introduction to, to a lot of people to the philosophy of peace and pacifism, I guess the question I have to start with is, what is war? What is war? Okay, that's a good place to start. Yeah, thank you again for inviting me for this conversation. This whole topic 
is complicated and difficult, as you know, and the, the terminology is loose and confusing. So even that question, what is war? That, I mean, we could spend an hour and a half or five or a lifetime trying to figure that out exactly. And as you probably know, the word war gets turned into a metaphor. So you can have a war against crime and a war against drugs and a war against racism. So these, you know, this is what philosophers do is we, we take concepts, we pull them apart, we dissect them, we try to put them back together. We make arguments. And I just warn you up front, it's, it's difficult and confusing. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the beauty of philosophy. <laughs> and, you know, so like we could start with a preliminary definition of war, which is um, organized political violence. That's kind of a standard go-to definition. It implies a couple of things. It, it has to be organized, meaning it's, it's not just you were, you know, I can't declare war on you. You can't declare war on me. Gangs don't really engage in war, even though we talk about gang warfare. Right. Generally, you know, in in the philosophical literature on this, war is going to be about it's going to be organized by political entities like states. But you know, there are subnational groups that could engage in something that seems like war, like an ongoing terrorist campaign. I mean, it's complicated, right? So connected with even the question of political, what counts as political? You know, so uh, you know, typically it's interstate conflict where we're we're fighting about borders, about power and influence, sometimes about resources, right? You can imagine wars that erupt over oil wells or access to fisheries or rivers or whatever. But it's, it's even difficult to figure out where to draw the line because, as you know, I mean, some people say everything's political. So organized political violence, well, that makes turns everything into war. And then the violence part, organized political violence, this assumes we know what violence is. <laughs> Turns out it's very complicated. I mean, there's lots and lots of definitions and uh, conceptual issues with regard to violence. Typically, the paradigm case involves uh, harm, bloodshed, death. But people talk about psychological violence. We talk about cultural violence, you know. So I don't know if I made it muddy enough to begin with, but it's complicated to say the least. No, no, that's, that's a, a perfectly good answer. As a, as a side note, it, it, it reminds me a little bit of, and I don't know whether you've ever seen it, um, the John Cusack film War Inc., no. which is all about war becoming sponsored by corporations, okay. which is a, an interesting concept of basically companies becoming bigger than states. Um, which is a philosophical side route, I think, and we won't dive into that because that that'll that'll lead us down a rabbit hole um, that'll be difficult to get out of. <laughs> You're listening to episode one of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. So I suppose um, if we go with your, I, I guess, what you would call a working definition of, of war, I guess the question is the opposite of that, what is peace? Yeah, so let's, let's dig in there. If, if war is organized political violence, then peace could be, <laughs> I'm making a joke here, disorganized, non-political, non-violence. <laughs> it's, it's only part of a joke, actually, because 
um, let's start at the end. Nonviolence, obviously connected to peace, right? So uh, if if war is violence, then peace is nonviolence. And in the literature on this and, you know, the terminology, the word nonviolence is hugely important. There's some scholars who, uh, you know, I talk about pacifism. I'm, I'm willing to use the word pacifism. But some scholars don't like that word. They'd prefer to use the word nonviolence as the, the, the primary category. That term has a deep history. You know, Gandhi talked about um, ahimsa, which is nonviolence in South Asian traditions. <clears throat> um, again, complicated. What counts as nonviolence? A more positive version, by the way, that word nonviolence is kind of troubling because it's negative, right? So it makes peace into something, into an absence or a lack. Like peace is the absence of war, basically something like that. I prefer a more affirmative approach. Sometimes this is called positive peace, but it's not just about not doing violence. It's about actively supporting human beings, respecting their dignity, love, compassion, curiosity, wisdom, all of that stuff falls under the general category of peace and nonviolence. And I actually have argued a number of places that, that peace, um, as opposed to war and violence, peace is like the default condition for human beings, or both descriptively and normatively. We mostly live in peace most of the time, right? We're, we, when we do uh, our family life, it's peaceful. When we do social life, it's, it's peaceful. When we're doing science and literature and art, it's peaceful. Violence is an aberration or a, a dysfunction that disrupts the ordinary peaceful background conditions of being human. So um, that's why, you know, I've gone back and forth with some of my colleagues about the terminology. And while I'll use the word nonviolence, I'm happy with that. I prefer something more affirmative. And I think peace works that way. And then last, you know, kind of preliminary idea about this. In the ancient world, peace was a goddess. So there was a Roman and Greek goddess. Irene is her name in Greek. In Greek. Pax is her name in Latin. And she's a goddess, and she represents good things. Um, and you see that the word Pax, uh, it shows up in other languages, like the word Shalom, like the word Salam in Arabic. These concepts and, and terms are hugely important in our lives. In fact, you know, there's a kind of common greeting, you know, and uh, Jewish folks say Shalom, which means hello. It also means I love you. It also means peace be unto you, and so on. So this is. Um, Again, my attempt to say that peace is, uh, is the fundamental default condition of human flourishing. Let me leave it at that. You're listening to episode one of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. Um... You've kind of already answered this, but I do kind of just want to see if there's more that we can dig out here with the the qualities of war and peace, and how do uh, do we define those with reference to one another, or can they be described as qualities in their own right? And how far do we push those qualities? I noticed you talked a lot about 
piece being on default. Um, but I know that some on the uh, more philosophically towards veganism and vegetarianism would argue that humans are violent by nature, therefore when we're, we're, we're violent towards animals and we should actively not be violent towards animals, which includes not eating them. I, I'm not going to get into the big <laughs> argument there, but I think that's, a, that's an, a, a side issue that is also often woven into this idea of peace and war and non-violence and violence. And so, so, so <laughs> yeah. So um, how, what are the qualities of peace and war? Let's, let's start there, I suppose. Yeah, well, I mean... Uh... Here, here's a here's a uh, an approach to this. Um, I I wrote my dissertation on Hegel, the German philosopher who talks about dialectic. Hegel's got a, an approach to concepts that that shows the interconnectedness of concepts. That idea goes all the way back to Plato and Socrates and the Greeks. Dialectics very important. So with that, put that term on the table. Dialectic. What I mean by dialectic is that there's an interplay and an uh, interchange among concepts. You can't just define a concept in isolation by itself. And I think that's where your question is going, that um, peace is defined in opposition to war, and we understand war in opposition to peace. Obviously true. Um, Just like the the terminology violence and nonviolence, right? These nonviolence is literally the negation of violence. Um, So your question is asking, I think, can we define the qualities of peace in isolation without the dialectical entanglement of these other concepts? And it's very, very difficult. And here's one reason it's difficult is life is just complicated. <laughs> so like you said, the, the vegan vegetarian example is, is huge, right? You cannot live without killing some other being, even if it's plants, you know, beans and cucumbers or whatever. You, I mean, ultimately life is a process that involves death and we all are gonna die ourselves. I mean, everything's interconnected. Okay, that being said, what would peace look like as best we can non-dialectically? I mean, we could say again, it's the absence of violence, it's the absence of hate, it's the absence of cruelty, it's the absence of hostility and enmity. We could do those dialectical definitions, but let's bring in some other words that are kind of synonyms with for peace. Well, love, is one love, uh, not possessive love, but sort of Christians would call it agapic love, love that is like the brotherly love, the God level love. We could bring in a term like compassion. This is more from a Buddhist South Asian tradition, right? Where compassion has to extend to all sentient beings. We're concerned about their suffering. In Buddhism, there's this wonderful, um, idea of the four immeasurable goods. And these four goods include love, compassion, equanimity, which is a little bit strange in that ballpark, and sympathetic joy. I love that idea of sympathetic joy. This is being able to take pleasure in other people's happiness. That's crucial to peace, right? So like, if there were peace, if peace broke out, we would find ourselves engaged in loving relationships, we would have compassion for the suffering. We would take joy in other people's happiness. And then that equanimity part, this, this idea of equanimity can be translated into tranquility, serenity. All of those words are another word, other words for peace, right? The Greeks talked a lot about um, 
uh, a, a Greek term, ataraxia, which is translated as serenity, also dialectically translated as non-disturbance, right? So again, we, we run back on this problem, like what is serenity? Well, to be serene is to not be disturbed and if we get a dialectical problem. I'm, I'm you know, we're, we're, we're playing a game of synonyms here now, right? All of these things, compassion, love, et cetera, they all fall under an umbrella. Um, and I, I like this idea of how we, you know, philosophers talk about family resemblance terminology or umbrella terms. Concepts are, are located and organized um, like by Venn diagrams, if that makes sense to you, right? There's, they overlap and um, synonyms function that way, but it's, it's edifying, right? When we can think of how the synonyms line up, we start to get a picture. Is it perfect? No. Is it dialectical? Yeah, because all on the outside of the connected concepts, there's all the other concepts that those concepts are not. Um, okay, I'm going to stop. I, I'm not, I don't know if I'm confusing you or helping. <laughs> no, no, it, it's fine. It's, I, I think it's, there's a big um, tradition, um, philo well, there's a big argument that used to be said a lot against philosophy with that it never came to any conclusions. Um, and I think, I think being fair about that and saying, yeah, sometimes we don't have a conclusion. We have an ongoing conversation um, to try and try and work these things out because as you said, they're complicated. So um, I think, I think you've been, you've been helpful because you, you, you've put it, given us a broader picture. You're listening to episode one of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. Um, so, moving slightly on, still the same kind of topic of war and peace. You wrote, um, and it was in the introduction, I can't say I've finished the book, I will sit down and do that, but in the introduction to one of your books, you mentioned, and I'm guessing maybe it was more of a mention than a, a dive into the topic, that living in a peaceful society might give rise to things such as greed. Um, and I, I suppose we could add in things like corruption and um, especially in the West, perhaps we might say entitlement. Whilst warfare has had um, positive impacts on developments within society. And I guess there's a couple of questions here. Is there a middle ground between war and peace? Do countries that are famously neutral and don't have an army, such as Switzerland, have any benefits that countries such as the UK and US don't have? Um, and yeah, could you just talk about that as a general kind of concept? Yeah, so is there a middle place between peace and war? Um, let's, let's, let's think about this from a standpoint that I'm gonna call consequentialist. So one moral theory, one general approach to thinking about good things and bad things is to think about the consequences they produce. I think that's where you got that, my remark about that war can produce good outcomes. Um, there are some who will argue, well, obviously, some will like say, well, we need war to defend human rights. We need war to defend innocent people from assault, right? Yes, that's probably needed in the world that we live in right now where there are, you know, people with guns <laughs> who can maraud us, right? We know that's an issue. But a further point that can be made is war drives technological development. War drives political development. I mean, revolutions stimulate 
constitutions, right? I mean, there, you know, there's violence has played a role in history of civilization for 3,000 years, 5,000 years. I don't know how long we want to trace this back. And then, you know, we build chariots. So now we develop technology and then we build tanks and then we build airplanes and radar. And, you know, I mean, this, this technology argument is interesting. Um, what about the goods of peace on the other consequentialist goods of peace? Well, uh, <laughs> I think it's entirely possible we could invent airplanes without war. <laughs> I think that techno technology argument is, is, it's useful, but it's a kind of after the fact, post hoc um, rationalization, right? We, we could have developed carts with wheels that were not chariots <laughs> because we just know that carts with wheels are useful, right? So I think the same technologies could be developed by peace as by war. I also, then back to this other argument about defending the innocent and defending human rights. Now this gets, this is deeper, right? This gets really complicated. And some people are going to say, you, the only way we can defend ourselves is through violence, right? Violence must be opposed by violence. And here is then where you need to, to study all of the practitioners and advocates of nonviolence. And, and the, the problem is that that story about violence being used to fight violence is so um, popular, I don't know how else to describe it, like widespread and popular, that people can't even imagine that you could defend yourself nonviolently. Um, I know that's probably on your list of questions to talk about, so maybe I'm jumping the gun. Um, but there is a, there, there's actually uh, important literature on how organized nonviolence can work. And behind all that, we can get into that in a moment if you like, but behind all that is the idea of preventing violence in advance, which takes us back to the goods of peace, right? Wh why does violence occur? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from unhappiness, from dysfunction, from a lack of social support, from, um, from broken societies. In societies, now I'm going back to Switzerland. I knew I'm rounding about coming back to where you went with Switzerland. In societies that are peaceful and whole, where people are loved and respected and feel connected, there's less violence. There's, there's data that, that, that show this, right? That it's, it's social dysfunction that produces violence and it's organic, peaceful, communal life that tends to defuse violence. So what are the goods of peace? Like what's the, what's the value of it? Well, dialectically, it tend, when there's more peace, more love, more harmony, it tends to reduce violence. And it also produces all those social goods that we like, friendship, family, science, literature, poetry, et cetera. Again, some of that stuff comes from war and violence because there's great poetry that comes out of war. But that's not, that's not um, the ideal. Wouldn't it be better to have poetry that's written <laughs> that comes out of peace than out of war? I don't know. I'm, I'm blathering on here. I'll stop and throw it back over to you. No, no, I, I think that's lovely. And I think that's, that's a good way to look at it. Ooh. You've touched on things I was going to raise, and I will raise them again a bit later. Uh, specifically, I think when we come to conversations surrounding just war, the concept of just war. You're listening to episode one of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast.
I wanted to raise one which is a little bit more left field, um, but of course related to this. Um, and I'm I'm a theology graduate, so I'm not raising it from the theology perspective on this one. But uh, I, I've titled it "The Problem of Evil." Um, <clears throat> So um, a lot of this, I have to be fair, a lot of this is referencing your introduction to Public War, Private Conscience, your book. Or uh, You describe acts and perhaps touch on evil as a description of someone or something. But I wondered if we have a universal working definition of evil and or the quality of what it means to be evil. <laughs> Ed, you have excellent questions. You're uh, you're digging deep here. Thank you. Um, hmm. You're thinking of of evil as um, as a metaphysical thing, like a presence. Is that is that where you're going with this? I, I guess. I mean, I, I'm I'm raising it. Yeah, I, I, I'm wondering what is. We often we 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 will we will describe an act as evil we will describe someone or something as being evil mm -hmm. but we're referring to acts and i just I, I guess i wonder is there a what what does it mean to be evil uh, what does it mean to be evil yeah well i mean you know again like a consequentialist approach to this evil is connected to harm so when things harm us they're evil but this is not a useful answer <laughs> because then you ask well what counts as harm right so it's just a, a game of synonyms again from evil we move to harm um it turns out you know when you when you look at the literature on this it gets really fuzzy i think i mean the 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 definitions kind of faded in the you know into the mists as it were um there's a problem that socrates confronted anyway um in addition, I think, to harm, and you know, the reason it's difficult to, to define harm is because not everyone agrees on what is harmful, right? So, um, I mean, think of a, like a, a real-world example, um, circumcision, for example, right? Some people will say that circumcision is actually good for the male or the female, like cultures practice this. Others will argue that it's harmful, right? So there's cultural relativity in a lot of this. Another interesting and important concept with regard to defining evil and harm has to do with autonomy and respect for persons. So one could argue that fundamentally the most important thing is a violation of someone's autonomy. This is, I, I would say, a more deontological approach to this, useful philosophical terminology. If our, if our autonomy is being violated, in other words, if we're being harmed against our will, then that is a kind of evil, right? Um, again, this is, it's only one view. So other people will say, autonomy, who cares? It doesn't matter, right? There's not, not everyone's on, on board with the autonomy argument. Think back to the circumcision example. I'm sorry to go there again, but we do it to children. So there is no presumption of autonomy, right? Parents make these choices for their children without considering the autonomy of the child. So this happens a lot of, a lot of the time. Okay. <clears throat> um, <laughs> the metaphysical issue, and you know this as a theology student, right? So in the Christian tradition, typically evil is described as a deprivation 
or a negation or a lack of God. Augustine, St. Augustine makes this famous uh, claim. Um, and there's a difficult theological problem because if God is good, where the heck does evil come from? <laughs> right? Other traditions have different views on this. There's, you know, like a kind of Manichaean, to, to quote one of the influences on Augustine again, a Manichaean view says that good and evil are sort of co-mutual principles in the universe. And it's always like this yin and yang to bring in another tradition between good and evil. Um, where am I going with this? I'm not sure. Remind me of the question again. I'm just rambling on about good and evil. Um, so, I mean, the original question was, um, do we have a universal working definition of evil and or the quality of what it means to be evil? And I think from your answer, we can kind of say, no, we don't, but we each have our own <laughs> view on that. And I, I think that actually kind of leads nicely to our next question. You're listening to episode one of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. Question as, as a purely logical question, everyone listening will turn off. Um, <laughs> so, <coughs> children are often seen as kind of the poor, unfortunate, blighted by war. So, do you think that the weight given to arguments surrounding the use and abuse of children in war over and above concerns for the rest of the citizenry is simply based on their youth, their inexperience, their inability to be involved civically in the decisions that lead to and prolong war? Or is there something even more deep-seated going on when we hold children up as almost the worst and highest evil form uh, casualty of war? Yeah, I, 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 yeah, it's a good, good question. I understand it. Um, I think where, where you're coming from is people will say, well, the worst thing about war is that innocent children are killed, right? And notice that the, the, the predicate there, innocent. Innocent children are killed. There's a presumption that children didn't do anything to cause the evil that's visited upon them, right? <clears throat> They're innocent. Um, why does that matter? So back to this definition of, of evil with regard to autonomy, right? When people's autonomy is violated, that's evil. Now, uh, one could harm someone and violate their autonomy in a situation where they deserve to be harmed. We call that punishment, right? When you harm someone and they've done something to deserve that harm, we even lock them in prison and take away their autonomy, but we think it's deserved, right? With children who are innocent, the story goes that they don't deserve the harm that's visited upon them. Um, so I think there's a deontological kind of moral claim that's implicit in that worry about innocent children. Another approach to this, I'd say a more consequentialist approach, is that the kids never got a chance to grow up and be happy. <laughs> so it's about their youth. It's about the fact that, you know, when a five-year-old dies, it seems much more tragic than when a 55-year-old dies. Um, and this has to do with a consequentialist measurement of the value of life. Um, 
again, not everyone will necessarily want to go in this direction because you could say, well, you know, if that 55-year-old is Albert Einstein or whatever, it's a deep tragedy. You know, if it's Mozart, it's a tragedy. But <clears throat> generally, I think the reason children are brought into the argument is it's because they have a whole life to live that's been taken away. And it's furthermore, it's not just about life um, bare existence. It's about the goods of life that are lost, right? So this is another problem with war. It not only does it, it kill people, but it maims them. It leaves them psychologically scarred and damaged. It destroys the infrastructure and families and schools and economies that support robust flourishing life, right? So I think, you know, people throw that, well, what about the innocent children? They're thinking all of that, right? That even if they survive the war, they, they're going to be suffering from uh, traumatic, you know, post-traumatic stress and their schools will be destroyed and the environment will be left polluted and so on and so forth. Um, is that helping a little bit with your question? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is a question. I, I, I would probably have thought along the same lines, uh, probably not quite as deep as you have, um, but it's a question worth asking. You're listening to episode one of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. This next question, again, is it's our culture, or the UK culture, I assume in some respects, Western culture in general, um, including the US, has certain questions that aren't asked a lot. One is, why do we hold children up to such a pedestal? We wouldn't ask that question. It's just assumed, um, you know, to a degree. Um, this next one is another one of those questions that as Western societies, um, we perhaps don't ask enough. Um, I am going to start by saying this question involves um, me mentioning, although I don't think I've actually written this. Oh, yes, I do. Um, Reuters news agency, which has a very specific position on this. Um, so, you talk somewhat in your preface on public war, private conscience about terrorists. Now, from a Western perspective, we can often come under criticism for using that word to describe others. Generally, it is others, it is not of our national boundaries. Uh, we would rarely describe those the same. Uh, we would, so we'd rarely describe people within our boundaries, within our national boundaries as being terrorists, those from within. It's usually from without. So from a journalistic perspective, I'm, I'm quite persuaded by Reuters' argument. Reuters news agency says that when we're reporting news, we shouldn't describe, as journalists, we shouldn't describe someone as a terrorist or even events as terrorist events. Essentially, to take the adage, one man's terrorist is another man's war hero or freedom fighter. So how do we reconcile this in our language, in our thought, especially when we begin to ask questions about Western imperialism and how what we might call something a terrorist could indeed be considered a legitimate act of protest. Now, I am not saying that I can 
I agree that they can be viewed that way. But I think of the Troubles in Northern Ireland as a classic example, um, and historically what is now the Republic of Ireland as well. So the heroes of the Republic today were labelled as terrorists and agitators by the ruling elite of the time. And I actually think there's a very funny funny story, because I was, I was on holiday in Dublin a good few years ago, before all of coronavirus and before my children were born, um, which is a key element because you don't go on holiday <laughs> when you've got children. Uh, <laughs> um, and there's a story that was told to me by two la- ladies in Dublin while we were sitting in a cafe, my wife and I. Uh, and there's the story of the thing called the Spire or the Monument of Light in Dublin's O'Connell Street. Um, and what happened was there used to be a statue of Nelson or the Pillar of Nelson there. And in 1966, um, the Irish Republican Army went in and tried to blow it up. And um, they didn't do terrible much damage, or, or at least they damaged the, 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 the pillar of Nelson, but not any other damage. Then the army uh, came in and had to perform a controlled explosion um, to bring the rest of this pillar down. Um, so the story goes that the army did more damage to the rest of O'Connell Street than the IRA did. So it's a bit of a digression. I like the story because um, I just think it's kind of funny. Um, you know, in that context, who's right. who's the terrorist? Who's the army? Um, <clears throat> but my question is: people such as James Connolly and Joseph Plunkett, um, whose wife—I don't know whether you'll know this—but Grace Gifford, the wife of James, Joseph Plunkett, was uh, the subject of a very famous song. Um, these guys are heroes in Ireland today. But I think perspective helps us. To the British, the Easter Rising of 1916, which included the taking over of Dublin's general post office, was criminal. It was an act of terror. Connolly was ex- executed sitting down in a Kilimane Ham jail by a firing squad. He was sitting as he hadn't recovered from his wounds, and Plunkett died hours just before his execution in his prison cell. Plunkett was a journalist, um, and a Connolly was a Scottish trade unionist and socialist reformer who was part of the Irish Labour Party. So the question is, are people ever actually terrorists or is it just a case of perspective? Is it wrong to call those who rage against kind of the tyranny of the nation state as terrorists? Yeah, no. That's a long way of saying, you know, are we using the word terrorist too lightly, I guess? Yeah, no, great. That's a great question. Um, you know, I... Uh... I think you're right. I think Reuters is onto something there that we, we can't use that term lightly, right? It, 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 it needs to be um, used with care and always with the recognition, as you just suggested, that perspective matters, right? One person's terrorist, another person's freedom fighter. You know, you've heard that a million times. It, there's some truth to that. Um, and yet I don't think the word's useless, right? So as, if we can be careful with it, um, then we could use it. So let me let me try to give a definition that that's careful, and then then say why the peace, nonviolence, pacifist position will argue against terrorism in any case, right? Whether it's by the state or by non-state actors. So, like a typical definition of terrorism that um, I mean, you see this like law enforcement will use this kind of definition that it's um, random. I think that's got to be part of it. Random violence, so violence again, that has a political tone to it or aim to influence political events. Now, I think those three things, it's random, it's uh, political, and it's violent, 
that, that already makes it complicated to figure out exactly what counts because your example of the statue, blowing up a statue, is that violent? You know, I mean, if no humans are harmed, it's, it's only quasi-violent in a sense. I mean, you know, these uh, some anarchists show up to protest, you know, and they, they break windows of a Starbucks or, or a Burger King or whatever, you know, is, is breaking a window violent? It's, it's an interesting and very complicated question there, you know. Um, some of the people that break things, <laughs> there's no political agenda whatsoever, right? So there are, I actually know some of these people. I've, uh, in, a, in another life, I, I used to, I knew some of the kind of skateboarder kind of punk rock folks. And it was this sort of a glee in breaking things without a political agenda. Is that terrorism? Well, not according to that definition. It's not politically motivated, right? Um, and then the random nature of it also is very important because, I mean, you, you hesitate to bring this up, but assassination is not really terrorism, right? It's, that's a targeted act of political violence aimed at a particular person with the idea that that person is responsible for something politically, right? That is different. Targeted assassination is different from blowing up a bus. Um, you know, a random kind of violence you could imagine occurs in Israel or wherever, right? Um, and I think what happens is the word terrorism just gets applied to all cases, right? Well, the vandal who, you know, breaking the windows at Starbucks, that's terrorism. And the assassin, that's terrorism. And it basically becomes a term to describe those we don't like. Do we not have an issue with the use of random here? Um, and I say that loosely, uh, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of an event in American history, but we'll, we'll, we'll come to that in just a second. But this use of random, if an event is planned in advance, it's never truly random. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, um, we'll bring up the big incident of 9-11, uh, terrible events. The people who planned it knew it was happening. Is that random? Um, I guess from the victim's perspective, it is. But from the perpetrator perspective, it's not. Um, and that, that kind of, I'll bring it up, but, and this is interstate violence, um, the Bay of Pigs uh, in American history, was that not America acting as a terrorist in, obviously, it was for political reasons, and I, I don't want to dig too much into it. But you know what I mean? This yeah. use of random, um, you know, from, from American perspective, no. From Castro perspective, yes. Um, yeah. No, I, do you get what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, I hear you on this. this um, it's, 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 again, we got a, a problem of perspective and relativism that what appears to be random to one party may not be from the other perspective, right? So, um Go back to 9-11 as an interesting example. Um, the World Trade Center, these two buildings were targeted. Is that random? <laughs> well, it could have been that's, that's just a target of opportunity, right? The easiest building to fly a plane into in New York City were those buildings. They were the tallest buildings, right? But they're the World Trade Center, right? So there's, this is a symbol of capitalism and global power, and Al-Qaeda has problems with global capitalism in the hands of Americans living in New York City, right? So, I mean, again, it depends on a matter of perspective. Um, 
Yeah. So like, let's think of a different example. Um, I'm thinking of the, the breaking of windows at protests, right? Some of these skateboard punks, <laughs> they target Starbucks, not at random. They're opposed to global capitalism and the, the Starbucks, you know, Starbucks everywhere, including in, you know, gentrification, you know, gentrified neighborhood, you know, they're targeting Starbucks deliberately. There are others who say break any window you can find. Doesn't matter whether it's Starbucks or a black owned business or a gay and lesbian friendly, but you know what I mean? They're, they're going to break anything. So, um, no, it's, you're, I think you're exactly right. This is, um, this term itself also very, very complicated and heavily politicized, right? So one side is going to accuse the other of being a terrorist. And then let's go to like a really gruesome and paradigm example of state terrorism. The Bay of Pigs is an interesting one. But terror bombing um, used by United States and American allies in many, many wars, the war in Europe, the war against Japan, the Vietnam War, where the purpose of the bombing is to just kill as many people as possible <laughs> in cities in order to destroy the will of the enemy to fight, right? It's, it's in a sense random, right? You just drop bombs on cities. It's not targeted. You're not targeting military installations. You're not targeting soldiers. You're just trying to kill people. Um, I think that counts as a kind of terrorism under that definition. It's um, now, of course, we don't, the mainstream doesn't accept that definition. Right. Um, and so we go, right. So it's again, a problem of perspective and so on, but I really, I believe, and I think you were pointing in this direction too. I think that states can commit terrorism. So it's not only non-state actors who can act as terrorists. States can also do this. And then back to my main thrust about peace and nonviolence, you see the problem, <laughs> right? I mean, wouldn't it be better to solve our, our, our differences without terror bombing, without blowing up buses and so on? Yeah, I, I agree. You're listening to episode one of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. Uh, this is a questionnaire that I ask everyone at the end. It's based on James Lipton's Inside the Actor's Studio questionnaire, which, of course, is based on Bernard Pavot's Apostrophes, I think was the name of the TV show in France, which is based on a guy called Marcel something in the 1800s. So it's a group of 10 questions. I've slightly edited them because I think James Lipton's were a little bit rude and he was asking actors. Um uh, but these are the questions that I have. Uh, what is your favorite word? Favorite word? Yeah. Um, at the moment, compassion. Uh, what makes you saddest? Unjustified suffering. What sound or noise do you love? Jazz music. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite curse word? Favorite curse word? Wow. Well, I guess the F word, it's so useful. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Hmm. Yeah, a musician. Music. This was episode one of the Docio podcast, hosted by Edmund Conroy, interviewing Professor Andrew Fiala. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast or on our website at docio.edconroy.co.uk. And please don't forget to subscribe using your favourite podcast listening platform.
Thank you very much for listening. That's all we have time for on today's show. Join me next time when I will finish that conversation with Professor Andrew Fiala on peace and pacifism. I've been Ed Conway and this is the Docio Podcast. Have a great rest of your week. Music was provided by freepd.com under a Creative Commons License Zero. Additional voiceover work by Hannah Conroy. All rights reserved. Copyright 2021, The Docio Podcast. If you would like to support the Docio podcast, then please visit our website shop to purchase merchandise or visit patreon.com forward slash docio to financially subscribe to the podcast. Your contribution alone could help the podcast make many more episodes.